We truly are blessed to be breathing and sitting here. I got a call last night about half of an hour past midnight. And, you know, there's a there's a, a family daughters that are without a mother this morning. Fifty five years old. It's not very. Still very young. We're blessed. We're blessed. And, and you know, for the past few nights, I, I really had a heavy heart and I couldn't sleep very well thinking about this family, thinking about the state of this woman, thinking about the fact that they hadn't seen her for several months. And this woman had been in the hospital. And, and uh, you know, that's what I talk about when we think about these things that we should we should be grieved. We should be grieved. Right. Our life is good. OK, praise God. But 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 where's the heart for the others out there, right? Everybody who's lost, everybody who's hurting. Right now, there's people despairing of life. They don't want to live. And so it should be a good heart check for us. Because, yeah, we can look at little things in, in our life that are going this way or that way. And, and, and it might ruffle us up a little bit. But it's nothing compared to what many people out there are facing. Now, the Bible says that we are the ones who carry uh, the light of the world. We are cities set upon a hill, right? We're not to be uh, put underneath the shelf or under a basket, but we're supposed to cause that light to shine or to allow it to shine, right? Uh, we don't have to cause it because light shines, but but allow it to shine where we go in those places of darkness. This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 12, and we're going to cover verses 20 through 26. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 26, and we'll start in verse 20. It says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. God, we ask that as we search deeper in your word, that you will give us a heart of understanding, God. Lord, as we pray, uh, about this wheat falling to the ground, may you prepare the ground of our hearts, Lord. May you give us an ear to hear and cause us to be attentive. And may you, Holy Spirit, speak to us accordingly, that we may leave more empowered than when we came in because of who you are, God. We ask you, Father, this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. So John chapter 12, these verses that we just looked at, 
then we're going to ask a question about a proper response. Now, first, we're going to see the response of Jesus, but we also want to consider the response that we have when it comes to the gospel or anything that has to do with God. Okay, we have in the past couple of weeks considered a lot of things, right? We considered the cost of becoming a follower of Christ. Then we considered the advantage of when we come to Christ, the advantage that is set before us. But today I would say let's consider the proper response to all of these things. Again, first from Christ and then first on our behalf, right? When it comes to situations whether they're good, whether they're bad, anything that life has to give us in general. What's the response that we give? Because when we look at Scripture, uh, there will be a different response from those who are deep-rooted in Christ. Remember the superficial or the ones that are deep-rooted. There will be a different response. Oh, they're still going to feel the same hurt. They're still going to feel the same agony. They're still going to have the same disruption in their souls. But there is going to be a different reaction, a different response to all of that. Because that's what a response is, is how we react according to any given situation, whether it be by word or even whether it be by silence, because silence is still a response. So again, first from the perspective of Jesus, then from ours. So uh, picture this, okay, Jesus is coming in on a donkey. Everybody's praising. Remember last week, they're throwing the palm branches and they're waving at him. And they're saying, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise be to God is what they're saying. Save now, God. We're ready. We recognize you as the Messiah. We have read that you're the prophesied one to come. You're, feeling, uh, you're fulfilling prophecy. You're riding in on a donkey. Let's do it. It's time now. So everybody's praising. The city's in an uproar, remember? Yet, at the same time, he, Jesus, knew exactly which ones of all of those many of thousands of people we're going to be the ones that were superficial. Picture that. He's coming in on a donkey. He's seeing faces all over. He's seeing palm branches. But he can look and say, that one right there next week is going to say, crucify me. Oh, that one over there. Oh, that couple over there. Yeah, them too. And as a matter of fact, they probably outnumbered the ones who were really authentic and sincere. But yet one thing we see is that that didn't stop him. That didn't stop him from coming in on a donkey. That didn't stop him from coming in humbly. It didn't stop him from, uh, from doing what he was called to do. It didn't distract him. It didn't slow him down one bit. He didn't get a frown on his face. and He didn't have a, a, a long look and, and start to look down. His countenance didn't fall and he didn't start rethinking things. Because his actions, his missions, his response was not according to what he saw, but it was according to what he knows. Not even according to what he knew because he's God and he's eternal, but what he knows. Not by what he saw. Now that's unlike a lot of people today, right? Because they don't even want to go to church. Why? Because there's a lot of hypocrites in the church. See, they focus on that and it stops them from coming closer to the kingdom of God because they're focusing on the wrong thing. See, Jesus, if he would have done that, it would have stopped him. But see, his response was different. 
or because somebody hurt me there, or I don't like so-and-so, or they don't treat me this way, then that's why I don't go to church. You see the different responses of people, man, we focus on the wrong things, therefore it strays us away from coming closer to the kingdom of God. Now remember the Pharisees said among themselves, look, the world's gone after them. You're accomplishing nothing, remember? And there were many, many thousands of people at this feast. Now, we'd have to say that some of them were there because they truly desired this. Some of them were probably there out of habit. Some may have been there out of curiosity. Some of them, maybe their wife drug them there, right? But there was many at the feast. And that's similar to the same thing that people do today, right? Isn't there a lot of people that we see around Christmas time, Easter, baby dedications, baptisms, that the church gets full, the family come. A lot of them don't come because they truly believe in what's happening. It's because, well, I just want to support so-and-so or, you know, I just, they asked me to come. Right? It's not a true heart uh, that they're there for. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning. And ponder this upon your hearts as we um, chew on this message. But the question is, are you truly satisfied with where you are in Christ at this very point in life? Are you content? Are you satisfied where you're at? Whether you are serving or not, whether you are giving or not, whether you're seeking after God or not, are you truly, truly content with that? Where you're at right now. Think about that. Ponder upon it. It doesn't require an answer to me, but this is something that we cause to stir our own souls up because I would say that even me, myself, I'm not content with where I'm at right now in Christ. We shouldn't be content. And if the answer is yes, that we're content, then we could almost say we may be lukewarm. If not on the verge of backsliding, I mean, come on, let's be honest, right? That's what we come to church for. We're not going to put stuff aside. We're not going to put stuff underneath the shelf. Let's just be honest and upfront and let's deal with it as a Christian should deal with it because that's what we're called to do. Let's stir one another up. Let's, let's stir one another up into good works, right? Coming closer to the Lord. The problem is that the, the standards in Christianity, they've been lowered when it comes to Jesus Christ. The standard has been lowered. After Jesus and the apostles, there was left a vibrant, powerful establishment to the believers. It's called the ecclesia, the church. The apostles, Jesus Christ themselves, they left it and it was vibrant. It functioned powerfully and fairly Fairly well for many years, but in the process of time, it began to veer off course. Then it took some mighty men with a proper response to rise to the occasion and make their voice known. This was called the Reformation, speaking out against all corruption, injustice, and iniquity. Make it clear, sin. Let's address sin. Now, what veered off course? Was it the establishment that veered off course? Not necessarily. But it was the heart of man that veered off course. 
It's like a boat, right? It's not the boat's fault that it goes off course, but it's the person who is steering the boat, the captain of the ship. Well, we've got a lot of captains of ships. They're called preachers and pastors, leaders in the church. And what began to happen is their hearts began to veer off course. And so these men had to rise up and say, hey, what's going on here? This is not righteous. This is not what we're called to do. Remember, they were coming and that's when they they entered in and then the Catholic Church started going off on a different route. And what they started doing was things that didn't exactly line up with the scripture. So these men like Martin Luther, like like uh, Jan Hus and, and all these other great reformers, they spoke up, but a lot of them were killed because of it. Uh, John, uh, Martin Luther wasn't killed, thankfully. But of course, they they spoke up. They weren't afraid to speak up. Because, see, they weren't concerned necessarily with man's heart, with man's feelings, but they were concerned primarily with the heart of God. Now, they did care about man because that's why they were speaking up. Because you're being led astray. You're being led in the wrong place. That's what a captain should do. That's what a leader should do. Now, I would say that today we can rightfully say that we are in desperate need of a modern reformation. See, they were crying out, saying there's injustice in the church. The things that you're doing, that's not even biblical. It's not sound with God. Well, we've kind of brought that reformation. Everything was great. And then guess what? We're almost right back where we started again. See, everything happens in a cycle. It's not just the bell-bottom pants that happen in a cycle. It's a lot of things that happen in a cycle, right? Hopefully parachute pants and and break dancing and shoelaces <laughs> hopefully they won't make a comeback right because i don't want nobody reminded that that's what i used to do we're in need of a modern reformation that's what we need today we need people with the attitude uh, toward the word of God, with the mentality of these great reformers to stand up and to speak about the injustice and the iniquity that's happening in the church today. Because the ecclesia, it's still abounding. The ecclesia is still abiding, but the thing is, it's going off course again. And we need the captains of the ship to steer it right back in the right direction. Now, the main captain of that ship is the Holy Spirit of God. And he's the one who moves the hands of the captain. But see, somewhere along the line, the spirit is being quenched and this is not happening. So we have to make sure that we line everything back up with God. Now, I was reading this week and in preparing for this, I, I was reading a, a commentary and I had never paid attention to this until I read this in the com commentary. But we've had several of what's called great awakenings since the inception of the church. A great awakening is what happens when, uh, well, exactly what the word says. Waking up. The church is asleep. You, you wake up now. I'm, I, 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 I know what's going on. A great awakening means basically there's revival. The Spirit of God is revived in the heart of man again. And there's been several series of, of revivals. But one thing that I had never paid attention to, and I now, after noticing it, is that the first half of the Great Awakenings, they were God-centered. People came to the Lord. These were preachers like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, known for his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Imagine that sermon right there. But people came to the Lord. 
But the second half of the Great Awakenings, when you pay attention to them, they weren't so much God-centered, but they were man-centered. And oh, people came to the Lord, but remember, it's more about the focus is on me rather than God. Remember, the, the church tends to think that they can help God a little bit, so let me make it a little bit more easier. Remember that word from last week, palatable. Let it taste a little bit better to them so that they can be receptive of it. And I believe uh, in revivals. See, the first great awakening, and this is another thing that I noticed that I think is very important for today. So if you write notes, write this part down, because the first half of the great awakenings, they differed from the other one, not just that they were God-centered, but also because they focused on the people that were already in the ecclesia. And as a matter of fact, when we read the Bible, that's what the apostles are doing. This word here is not written to people who are lost. Now, can a lost person uh, be saved by reading this? Absolutely, but it's not primarily directed to a lost person. It is written to the church. Open up every letter and it says, Greetings from the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, James, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, to the elect, to the church, to the ecclesia, the body of believers. You think maybe that's what we need to get back to today rather than being so quick to uh, go out, even though, yes, we want to go and reach the world. But it seems like we've kind of uh, ran the race and we have forgotten to take the baton with us. I myself believe in revival. What does revival mean? It means that something is revived, something that was dead. It's caused to become alive again. Revivals uh, is yet to come with the people of God, Israel, the Jews. Revival is yet to come. But revival is dependent upon us because if we're not willing, then how can it happen? Or how can you revive something that hasn't even died yet? And that's what we're going to talk about today, dying in Christ. But see, a lot of people haven't truly died. So how can they even be revived? Again, you're running the race and you're leaving the baton behind. So I would say that we have to slow down the church in general. We need to slow down. We need to reorganize. We need to reform. We need to tie up all the loose ends and restructure according to God's word and God's heart before we can move on any further without with any success. Amen. Does anybody agree with that? If we're going to have any success in the church, we have to regather everything. We have to rethink things and do them according to Scripture. That would be a proper response. And that, of course, would be with the best interest of God, primarily, not necessarily man. Man would be secondary in that interest. So that's the situation in today's text, right? Jesus, again, rode in on a donkey, concerned with what is in the best interest of God, not man. I'm here to do the will of the Father, right? That's what he said. That's what I came for. I didn't come to be popular on Facebook. I didn't come to be popular on YouTube. I, I didn't come to be uh, popular to the, you know, the here and now. I came to do the will of the Father. And in that, then man comes into play. Because if it's done in the right order, then man absolutely is going to benefit how? Everlasting life. It's called salvation. It's a free gift, right? 
No, it's not just restored relationships or, or physical healings. Those are byproducts, but it is eternal salvation. That is the ultimate, ultimate result of it all. So verse 20 tells us that there were certain Greeks who came up to worship at the feast. Okay, these were more than likely Gentiles, which back then were considered dogs. Not, they didn't like them very much. They came as well. Now, there is Greek-believing uh, Jews, and they were called Hellenists. This doesn't say that the Hellenists came. This said that there were certain Greeks. There was people who didn't know God, but somewhere along the line, they're seeing everything that's happening, and they're seeing all the praising, and, and something sparks up in their mind, and it's probably stirred up in their heart. So these Jews come. And they approached Philip and they said, we wish to see Jesus. They desired and asked to see Jesus. It wasn't just an ask. There, there was a desire there. I want to know more. Why, why is everybody so concerned? I'll never forget. I was on an airplane coming back from North Carolina. And in the airplane, I, I did observe. I noticed two guys. And I, the reason that I noticed them is because it was really obvious that they dyed their mustache because it was blacker than black. <laughs> and something was different about them, right? And, and I'm not saying anything against dyeing mustaches. I'm just saying it was just really obvious. It looked right. But I noticed that these people were somebody because everybody kept looking at them. And then they'd turn around and say stuff to each other. And at first I thought they were talking about the, their beards and mustache. But after a while, when we got off the plane, as they were walking in front of me, I started noticing people kind of reach out to them. And, and they would look at them as they're walking by. And I'm thinking, I, they must be somebody. I, 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 don't, I don't know, right? And then right before they split off ways, uh, there was a police officer who even stopped them and said, hey, can you, why don't you take a picture of me with these guys? And so he took a picture with them. And I said, no, they're definitely somebody. I don't know who they are. And... Well, after I researched when I left, because I was curious, who were these guys that, I mean, everybody seemed to want to be with them. Well, apparently it was a, a couple of the members of the Tigres del Norte. I have no, I had no clue who they are. I don't listen to that. Uh, yeah. I don't listen to that, write the music. So I didn't know who they were, but I found out who they were. So imagine these people's curiosity, these Greeks, they were, they're seeing Jesus. They might not have known the prophecy, but they're seeing him riding on a donkey. They're seeing all the commotion and saying, who is this guy? And it sparked up a curiosity like with me that I wanted to search and find out who are these guys. Now, I didn't necessarily, uh, the end result, want to see them like they wanted to see Jesus, but they wanted to see Jesus. I want to get close to this guy. I want to talk to him uh, because he sure does seem to be someone. They wanted to know more about him and understand. So Philip told Andrew, and then they both in turn went and told Jesus. Now we have to observe the response uh, that, that Jesus told them. He said, repeat this prayer after me. Is that what Jesus told them? No. Jesus did what he's actually notoriously known for doing, and it almost seems like he discourages people from following him. It's like Jesus always does that. Uh, Jesus, I'll follow you. 
Foxes have holes in the ground and birds have nests in the air, but me, I don't have nowhere to lay my head. You still want to follow me? I imagine a lot of people would say, nah, forget it. Hey, Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you. But first, let me go bury my dad because he just passed away from the coronavirus. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. If you want to come, come. There's no time to mess around. Let's go. Let's get right to it. And he almost discourages them. But what Jesus is doing is he's preparing them in their hearts. Do you really want to follow me? This is what you're going to get. They hated me. They're going to hate you. Are you sure you want to follow me? Okay, make the correct decision now, but don't play around with uh, who I am or my character. Just follow me if you're going to follow me. And like I've always said, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, then that's great because none of us has the authority to say if you're a true Christian or not. But if you're going to fly under that banner, then walk worthy according to that calling. But Jesus responds to him. Did he say, that's great, bring them on over. I want to talk to him too. Or did he say, well, I can see him next week about three o'clock because I've got plenty of other appointments. He didn't say neither of those things. But instead he replied and he said, the hour has come that the son of man be glorified. Again, there's no time to waste. Let me get right back to the point. I'm about to be crucified. Because this is what he means. The hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified. How was he going to be glorified? On the cross. By being lifted up. By dying. And today, what's the response? The same. There's no time to waste. Back then, he was going to be glorified. Today, he's coming back for his church. He'll be glorified a second time. So in verse 24, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So he starts off with this famous, uh, his famous line that just says, absolutely, this is what it is, right? Amen, amen. Truly, truly. So be it. And it speaks of his death, but it's also an example to you and I in Christ. He says, unless, so that tells us that it's conditional. Unless you do this, unless a seed falls, it means to descend from a higher place to a lower. And notice that it says, unless a seed falls into the ground, not on the ground, but unless a seed falls into the ground. And it dies, then it abides alone. How does it die? It, it means to perish by rotting. This is what it, uh, it the, the picture would be a tree that dries up when it starts to, when it, it's dead and it starts to rot away and it just gets dry. So unless you uh, fall to the ground and die, then that seed abides alone. It continues to be forsaken. It's without life. It is helpless. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So if it does the opposite and it, and it dies, it keeps on, it endures, it continues even through the carrying of burdens. Isn't that what Jesus did? He carried the burden on the cross. Isn't that what we do when we're able to carry the burdens of life? 
This family who just lost a mother last night, they're able to carry that burden. Yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, there's going to be tears, but they're able to carry a burden. And you don't come unglued. So, of course, Jesus is talking about himself, right? Unless I die and I get buried and I'm resurrected, then nothing's really going to prosper. Everything's going to stay the same. Everything's going to continue to rot and be detestable. But if I die and I'm raised up again, then that's going to cause you or allow you to be able to endure through things, to be able to abide and to continue through all of these burdens that life is going to give us while we remain and occupy here. That's the effect. That's the result. The response is the same as it was then, and it'll always be. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. And if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the response is the same today as it was back then. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Pastor, I wish to see Jesus. Brother, sister, I wish to see Jesus. I want to know him more. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it'll bear much fruit. That's the response that we give to people. Now, maybe not that cut and dry, right? We want to explain it because then they're probably going to just be mesmerized. And what are they talking about? But we, we explain it. Exactly what is happening. And then he gives a deeper response in verse 25 because he says, He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, what are you really talking about, Jesus? Because I thought that uh, we're supposed to love these things. Now you're saying I got to hate my life. I mean, what kind of Christian is that? Well, we have to understand what he's saying there, and that's what we do on Sundays. It means that he who loves his life, uh, this is talking about this life on earth, if you're fond of it. If you're only concerned with your emotions, if you're only concerned with your happiness, your situations, that's all I'm concerned with. Again, remember at the beginning, it doesn't matter what's happening out there. It doesn't matter how, how I have to go about getting what I want as long as I get it. So if I have to lie a little bit or cheat a little bit, what matters is that I get it. That's all that matters. I got this car. Yeah, I lied about how much money that I made, but it's okay. I got the car that I wanted. That is loving this life. If you want to do that, Jesus said, you're going to lose it. Basically, what it means is if you love your life like that, your life is going to become useless. It's going to become ruined. It's going to be destroyed by the troubles that are promoted by the flesh. This flesh that says, I want, give me this, that. And I would probably say with assurance that we've all experienced that. This flesh causes us to just have to experience those things that we don't necessarily have to. But he who hates his life, okay, this is the crazier part. What do you mean hate my life? He who hates his life. It doesn't mean that you hate your actual heartbeat or you hate uh, the, the breath of life that you have. But what it means is that you love less. It's that Greek word, maseo. It means to love less. 
As I've said before, if I hand you two watches and you look at one and you choose one, then what does it mean? That you love the other one less. That's why you didn't choose it. When, when God said, uh, or the Bible says that God uh, hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. That's what he means. He loved him less. But why? Why did he love him less? Because he is a picture and a type of the flesh. But Jacob is a type of the spirit. That's why. And then we start to make a connection. So if you hate your life, so if you count it as less worthy, then you shall keep it. And what that means is that you're going to keep watch over it. You're going to guard it. It means to be set apart through the idea of isolation. Lest one become ruined or spoiled. See, because that's a lot of times how we get in trouble is because we don't necessarily isolate. And so it causes us to be ruined or spoiled. Now, that sounds pretty lonely, doesn't it? It does. And for the person who's truly walking with Christ, for the person who's truly forsaken all things, they have experienced that loneliness. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, it, it's hard to explain, right? It doesn't mean that you're just like going crazy and, and, and I'm lonely and I don't know what to do. I don't want to live no more. But it is a loneliness because you have separated yourself. Think about Jesus. He walked this earth his whole life in the last three years of his ministry. He had people that said, I'll follow you. They all abandoned him. You think that didn't feel lonely? You think it didn't feel lonely when he said, my soul is troubled to the point of death. I'm going to go pray to the father. You stay here and watch and pray. And he comes back and they're asleep. Not once, not twice, but three times. You think that didn't feel lonely like they have forsaken me and they've left me? It can be lonely. But that's exactly why the ecclesia needs one another. That's why we're part of the same body, because we uh, uplift one another. Now, to try to help all of this, I'm going to share some scriptures that they should fit right in place. It's quite a bit of them. But the first one being Galatians chapter two, verse 20, the apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What do you say? I've been crucified with Christ. Is he literally crucified? No, he's not literally crucified. But he's already reckoned it in his heart. My life is useless to myself. My life belongs to God now. It's not me who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. It is the spirit of God that lives through me, who speaks through me the things that I say, the way that I react to things. It's no longer me. Because, again, for us who are in Christ, knows that the old person, oh, it wouldn't be going so nice in certain situations, but God's changed us, so we react differently to those situations. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, says, If then, again conditional, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things Above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There is a promise that is to come for us. It's not necessarily going to come right now, but we can't 
get it mistaken because that's what happened to the Jews. When they saw Jesus coming, this is him, this is the Messiah, it's on now, we, our time to shine. But then when they saw that, wait a minute, they took him captive, they're going to crucify him? This isn't the king, because it didn't look the way they thought that it should look like. We can't fall in the same footsteps of those people. Just because it doesn't look like the way we think that it should look like. We can't go down that wrong path. So it says, seek and set. Seek those things which are above, not the things that are on the earth. It means strive after them, follow after them, pursue after them. Set your mind on the things of heaven. Set them. You put them there and that's where they stay. It doesn't mean hover over them with a mouse, right? Temporarily and then go somewhere else. It means set yourself on them. Stay there. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. Paul again saying, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt. Remember that rotting away, that detestable life? According to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Seeking after God. Put off the carnality. Put off the wrong thinking. Put off the wrong attitude and put on the mind of Christ. Don't always think negative about people, even how they react. And maybe they are reacting wrong. But, but be optimistic and turn it and change it around. Second Corinthians. Chapter 6, verse 17 says, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Remember this idea of isolating, this idea of being set apart. That's what he's saying. Come out from among them. Now, this doesn't mean uh, don't even go outside your door. Just stay because now you're a Christian. You can't be mingled. No, Paul said, if that's the case, then the Lord might as well just come and take us. What he means is don't mingle with them. Don't be intertwined. Remember the Bible telling a man and a woman to not be unequally yoked. Well, that also applies to us with our friendships and our relationships in the world and in the workplace. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't let them so close in your life because they're going to lead you astray. Remember that mixed multitude that came out with the Israelites. They're the ones who caused them. These people caused this kind of destruction and chaos in the life of a believer. He's saying, come out from among them. Don't do as they do. Don't say as they say. You follow me. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. The apostle Peter says, But you, you, man or woman of God, you in Christ, you are a chosen generation. God has picked you. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The Bible calls us peculiar people. We are peculiar. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Holy means set apart, right? We're not the ones who return back to our own vomit. We're not supposed to be. A royal priesthood, 
Do you see people that are royalty, that they just have dirty, dingy clothes on? No, people move out of the way for them. They roll out a red carpet. Christ has rolled out a red carpet, but it's not out of fabric. It's painted red by the blood that he shed for us. And we follow upon that as we're going uh, toward the goal in Christ. So verse 26 says that if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. If anyone wants to serve me, if anyone wants to do anything, Follow me. Let that be the priority. You want to give money to the ministry? You want to help uh, serve in ministry? You want to do anything for Jesus? All of that is good, but make sure the foundation is that you're following me, that you're doing it in the right manner. As I was talking with a brother this morning, I was sharing with him that there's people on two sides, right? I always talk about overcorrecting. When somebody's driving and let's say they doze off, the immediate thing they want to do to avoid a collision is they, they want to turn the steering wheel, right, to get back on track. But they make a grave mistake and they overcorrect and that overcorrection causes them to veer to the other side. Then they try to overcorrect again. And what happens? The undesirable collision. And sometimes there's even death. That overcorrection happens in Christianity. They don't want to go this wrong way, so they overcorrect, and now they've gone the other wrong way. And so you've got two types of people. You have busybodies who just want to serve, 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 give, 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 but there's no true heart for Christ. But then they, there's the overcorrectors over here who are just what the Bible calls sluggards. They're lazy. They don't want to do nothing. They don't give. They don't help. Might I say both of them are very sinful. It's the way right in the middle, that proper balance that we all want to uh, look to go after. If you want to do anything, follow me. That's the primary thing. Follow me. That's the first thing. Do that and you will be where I am. And my father will honor you. It means he'll highly esteem you. That is true service to God before anything else, before anybody preaching, before anybody baptizing anybody. It's true service to God, making sure my heart is for Christ and for Christ alone. That's why people are adamant. Are you sure you want to get baptized? Are you sure that you've made a decision to get baptized? Are you sure you're going to follow Christ? Because this isn't something that you have to do. It's something that you want to do to proclaim to the world like people come up to the altar. I've decided to follow Jesus. And as the old hymn would say, no turning back. But a lot of people turn back. A lot of people turn back. As a matter of fact, we baptized uh, eight people last year and there seems to only be one standing. What's the problem? Baptism doesn't save us. Baptism just tells the world, I've decided to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be concerned. We should be very concerned. The way is clearly laid out through a proper response. Now, what is our response? What is our response to all of this? In this text that we read today, there's a lot of talk about seed. There's a lot of talk about dying. There's a lot of talk about growing. And unless there's a 
farmer in the room, they can help us out. But Jesus was the first seed, and we are to follow. Remember uh, the prophecy, Genesis chapter 3. He told the lady that your seed shall crush the serpent. Now, if you're paying attention, women don't have seed. The man has seed. So then you have to realize, okay, this is coming further down the line, right? This is talking about a man. That seed is Jesus Christ. And we follow after him. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And hopefully we can have some insight. Or let's say, put a visual to it. To everything that we are talking about. Because Jesus died. Picture the seed, right? Apparently the Corinthians didn't understand it necessarily. And they said there's not a resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 36. Jesus, I mean, Paul, the apostle Paul says to him, foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain. That's what you put in the ground. Perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases. And to each seed, its own body. So what comes up out of the ground, God's the one who causes it to be what it's going to be. You go down to verse 42. It says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, but then it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's sown in weakness because this flesh, it is our weakness. It's our only weak link, nothing else. But when we are raised up with Christ, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, right? The natural body goes to the ground. But then it is a, Afterward, a spiritual. And it's also written that Adam was the, the, the first man, Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. So one was spiritual. The other one was spirit giving, life giving. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural one and after the spiritual. The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from the heavens. See, we're alive the first time, but we're alive according to the natural one. But when we die, we're supposed to die and then be raised up spiritually. Think of a seed. Okay. In order for a seed to grow, there must first be death. Jesus said it rightly. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, but the moment that seed falls away from that life-giving source, that plant, whatever it is, it's dying. Or it might stay alive for just a small amount of time, but it's dead. It'll be green this evening, but in the morning, guess what? It's going to be brown, dry, rotted. But it must die before. Then there has to be darkness. That means the absence of light. This is really important. 
Because if you've thought about your coming to Christ, most people who come to Christ, they come through the midst of darkness. You come through something very hard in your life and it is a place of darkness. And that is your point of conversion because you turn around and you surrender to Jesus Christ. You die in a sense. And then you have to face darkness. Then when life is becoming, the ground is then broken and that life reaches and lives from the light. Isn't that what a seed does? It's underneath the ground. It's dark under there. As a matter of fact, light is going to harm it at that point. It needs darkness. Just the same way we need to go through some kind of brokenness sometimes because we won't come to Christ. The light is too much. We don't see the benefit from it, but we need to be uh, allowed to uh, go through some kind of darkness. We die to ourselves and then the ground of our heart starts to break and whatever comes forth, whatever shoots forth, it breaks through that ground and then it reaches after Christ the way the plants do. Notice a lot of plants, they go toward the light. They don't go away from the light. They go toward the light. The same thing that a seed does is the same thing that happens to us when we uh, obtain salvation with Christ. Now, we recognize him after that as a life-giving source. I need that light, just like the plants do. Women, right? You take your plants out and you put them in the sun. And I saw a quote in looking for this, and the quote says that a seed neither fears the light or the darkness, but it uses both of them to grow. And that is very true. Because as Christians, we don't fear the light, we don't fear who God is, and we don't fear darkness either. I've said it before, right? Come hell or high water, I'm not going to fear. Why? Because... God's on my side. But instead, we use what? Both of them to grow. We look to Christ. We run to the horn of our salvation and we grow from it. And one thing that's important to note is that as Jesus is talking about a wheat grain, the wheat plant needs to grow to its full height and development in order for reproduction to take place. So if that plant doesn't reach its full potential, its full maturity, it's not going to reproduce. That's important. Why? Well, Jesus is talking about a wheat plant. We are that wheat, right? He's going to come, and, and when he comes back, he's going to separate what the wheat from the tares. Now, the tares look just almost exactly like wheat, but one of them is bad, one of them is good. They look the same. Isn't it kind of like the sheep and the goats? They're similar, but they're still different. Jesus said, I'm going to separate the goats from the sheep. I'm going to separate the wheat from the tear. As a matter of fact, in the parable, the disciples said, Lord, what do you want us to do? Separate them? Uh, pull out the weeds? He said, no, leave them alone. Lest you pull out some of the good wheat in the process of it. Leave them. Let them be. I'll separate it all when I come back. That right there should be concerning to us. That should cause us to say, I need to get back in this word and, and, and get uh, before the face of God. And in talking about awakenings and reform and, and standards, I mean, it couldn't be any truer than what we're seeing happening today. But I was reminded with all this talk of sowing and growing that as I was looking several years back for a certain plant that I like, because I'm very fond of the lantana plants. I'm very fond of them. I like them. I started to realize that some of the ones that I bought, and I bought them because they looked very nice. The colors were very vibrant. They were beautiful, like they were perfect. 
After studying, I came to realize that they were hybrid lantanas. It's a hybrid plant. Now, we can make the connection after this, but there is something very important because you have original plants and then you have a hybrid plant. Without getting into great detail, I'll just talk about the advantages and the disadvantages. But the advantages why people grow hybrid plants is because they're physically uniform. They're nicer looking, right? That's what I said. Yeah, they're perfectly round. You don't have a one side higher over here and lower. They're perfectly round. They're better looking. They grow faster. The colors are brighter. And they are the ones that I bought that are hybrid. They're very just, they look really nice compared to the original ones. But the disadvantages to these hybrid plants is that there is, uh, there's more trouble to produce them. So the first one that they grow is fine, but they take more, uh, it's more trouble to produce them. They take longer to develop than the original plant. Remember, development is crucial for the wheat plant because if it doesn't get there, it can't reproduce. And they suffer more when things are not quite so opportune. When things aren't good, they're going to suffer more. So the original plant might withstand a colder temperature, but the hybrid plant, it's, it's not going to have it. And so it'll die faster. But more importantly is that many hybrids will produce sterile or no seed at all. Okay, if it does provide a seed, it's going to be sterile or they don't have none at all. And if the seed does sprout... This time, you don't know what you're going to get. It's not going to, it's not going to be the same as that beautiful, round, vibrant looking one. It may look totally different. Matter of fact, if it was a human, it'd be asking for a DNA test. Why is all of that important? Because I see the fact that talking about reformation. Talking about revival, the church has been creating a lot of hybrid Christians. Well, they look really good. They sound really good. But see, they can't hold up in the fires. They can't withstand when the opportune times are good. And if they try to reproduce somebody and lead them to Christ, guess what? You don't know what you're going to get. You don't know what kind of outcome there is going to be there. That's if they win anybody to Christ, because just like with the hybrids, they're sterile. They don't produce much seed. And as a matter of fact, uh, Jesus' command to Adam and then to Noah and then to the disciples was to be fruitful and to multiply. multiply. Okay, we need to have that seed to go forward. Now, it might not seem important right now, but there is, and it does seem like there is a lot of hybrid Christians. Now we know why we need a modern reformation. Because those who do come to Christ, you don't know what you're going to get. Because now you have so many that say, well, no, this is how God operates and this is how God operates. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And you got people falling away, people unstable. You have people uh, with lives that are powerless. Lives that are powerless or they think they have the power in themselves. Well, that's why you can't put the bottle or the can down. That's why you can't put the dope down. That's why you can't stop looking at women with lust. That's why uh, you don't know how to treat your kids is because there's no power inside because the resurrected power of Jesus Christ isn't residing inside of you. 
At that point, we would have to allow ourselves to fall, uh, to die and to fall to the ground so that the Holy Spirit of God, because that's the process of a seed, water comes and it begins to soften that outer shell. And as it softens it, then the plant can break through. Something germinates. That's what the process is called, germinate. And so with us, the Holy Spirit of God comes and it begins to soften our hearts. It begins to soften where something can germinate forth from there. But it's nothing that we do. God does it all. Because if we try it, we're unsuccessful. We end up being sterile. People end up falling away. Maybe even being the ones that are lifting up the palm branches. But Jesus already sees and say, yeah, next week they're going to say crucify him. Next week they're going to turn away. Maybe because they didn't get the job that they wanted or because they didn't get the, the spouse that they wanted or uh, whatever it is, right? God already knows. He knows our heart. So, okay, now it makes more sense that it says Jesus, knowing the hearts of all men, did not commit himself to them. Why? Because he knows what's in the heart of man. He knows what's in every single one of our hearts. This morning, this very minute, exactly what we're thinking. And so it goes back to that question. Are we satisfied where we are at in Christ this morning? The point where we are at, are we satisfied with it? When I talked about perspective a few weeks back, right? Remember I gave the analogy of the sun and people have the sun like this, but we're supposed to draw near closer so that the sun will be big. It'll cause us to die. You know, for the people who have him like this for the people who say yeah, i experience his blessing but when he sets in the nighttime then i can do what i want to uh, those people don't realize that the only thing between them and that sun is the earth that's the worldliness that is inside the heart of a man that's the only thing that's between them. But the person who draws near to God and says, I see you, God, you're huge. You are abundant. You're vast. There is no worldliness. There is no earth between them getting in the way. It can't become an eclipse. It can't foreshadow. That's the worldliness that we want to put apart. So as we draw closer to the Lord, that worldliness begins to go away. It begins to fall away, right? We're called to holiness and righteousness. That's what he created us for. And if that seems boring, then we got a big problem. And that's where the problem started. Because things seemed boring. Let me spice it up a little bit so that I can keep them coming. But that's not the way we do it. We should be coming back. Why? Because I want more of God. I don't want more of myself. I don't want more of that preacher. I don't want more of anything else. As a matter of fact, like Paul would say, I consider it dung. I want more of Jesus and Jesus alone. I want it to be God-centered. That's when revival will begin to happen. And I don't know about you, but that's what we desperately need in this country right now. And I would say that that is the will of God, but he needs to start in a willing place. So what is our response this morning? Do we say me, God, like the prophets? Send me, Lord. Here am I. Speak to my heart, Lord. Show me. What do you need me to do? Where do you need me to serve? Do you need me to give more? Because uh, to me, I'm doing pretty good, but God may say that. I, I, if that's the case, I don't even need it. I mean, there's so many areas that God could speak to us. Uh, do, are, are you calling me to rise up more above the occasion? Because, see, we move the earth, we move kingdoms uh, so that we can uh, comply with work and what they want us to do. We move kingdoms in order for our kids so that they can be in sports and take violin lessons. But we don't move a finger when it comes to the things of God. So what's our response this morning? Because God's saying he said it all today. Right there, first in John chapter 12, 
If you love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life, you're going to keep it. You're going to guard it. That's what all of this is about. He didn't ride in on a donkey just so that we could read and say, hey, he rode in on a donkey. He rode in on a donkey with the mission. And we should ride in to this place and we should get up every morning and ride into our job with a mission and saying that mission is to serve Jesus Christ. The mentality of Paul. I'm determined. I've come to the point. That's the conclusion to know nothing else. I don't want to know about the, the, the Biden. I don't want to know about Trump anymore. I don't want to know about what's going on in Facebook. I don't want to know about Antifa. I don't want to know about Black Lives Matter. I've come to the place. I don't want to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That should be our end result this evening. That's what we should go out from here proclaiming uh, to the world out there because there is a world who needs us. They need that light so that germination would come from that point on. Lord, we know one thing, God, is we can look out there and we can see that there is a big problem in the church. And when we realize that this, the first great awakenings, God, they were centered around you. Yes, they addressed the church. Why? Because, God, we've, we've dropped the baton, Lord. There's so many loose ends in the church that we need to get tied back up. As your word says, we need to gird the loins of our mind. We need to become spiritual. We need to stop being carnal, God. But we need your guidance and your direction. So help us, Lord. Speak to our hearts this morning. Every man, every woman here, myself included, God, speak to us. Are we happy where we're at in Christ? Is there something else I need to do, God? Not because that's how I'm going to be saved, but because, God, it's just simply pleasing to you. You want to use me, God. May we never quit your spirit or your hand at work. Lord, continue to reveal to us, God, that we would not love this life, that we would not be uh, so concerned with our own affection, so concerned, God, with, with our own complacency in life, God, but that we would be more concerned with what you have for us. Because I see one thing today, God, there's many modern day so-called prophets that want to be used by you to speak their word. But it doesn't seem like they're so willing to be made an example of like the prophets of old. That's when we can see that there's a problem. That will, that's when we can see that they're not so authentic. God, we pray this morning that you would cause us to be authentic, Lord. That we would recognize you as that life-giving source and not look anywhere else, God. Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you for your mercy, for your patience, for your long-suffering. May we become pleasing to you now in your sight, God. We ask in the name of Jesus.